Today's reading is from Amos chapter 7, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 3. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested, and just as the second crop was coming up. When they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. The Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words, for this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out of here, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy any more in Bethel, because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a shepherd. I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now then, hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the house of Isaac. Therefore... This is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city. Your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. The land will be measured and divided up, and you yourself will die in a pagan country. And Israel will certainly go into exile, away from their native land. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. A basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos, he asked. A basket of of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, The time is ripe for the people of Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing, many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, good morning. Let me have my welcome. My name's uh, Matt Fuller, if we've not met. And if you're visiting us here today, well, welcome to Amos. Um, strong words. Uh, let's pray as we look at this book together. Our Father, thank you that you, you speak. You speak today. You don't leave us adrift in this world, uncertain if you're there, uncertain what you think but you speak clearly, timelessly in your word. And thank you that you give us things there that we need to hear. We don't really want to consider this book of Amos, but we need to hear it and understand his words, your words to us. 
So give us understanding, we pray, by your Spirit. Give us hearts to receive these words and respond to you rightly, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Patience is a wonderful virtue. We we all know that, or at least have some awareness of that, I would hope. Patience is a wonderful virtue, but unlimited patience is not. Because we do want patience to run out at some point. I think we know that. So uh, the good parent, the good parent is patient with a misbehaving child. And yet there comes a point where the good parent says enough and discipline is imposed for the child's good. Rather than letting the screaming toddler wrap parent round their finger and get whatever they want, the good parent says, no, enough's enough. Now there must be discipline for your good. So you're not ruined as a human being. Or a slightly different way, uh, patience is also needs to end for the good of others. So in the school setting, the school bully's given a chance. So he bullies a child. Okay, don't do that again. But he is given a chance. He's given a second chance. He might even be given a third chance. But at that point, the patience runs out of the headmaster. For, for the sake of everyone you're bullying, for the sake of your victims, patience runs out and you're expelled. And that is good, we say. It is unfair to let the bully just relentlessly impose himself and cause misery upon others. Patience is a good thing. But unlimited patience actually is, it's not loving, it's indifference. Or uncaring. If you're the head teacher who just is fully aware that the bully goes round stealing money and imposing whatever it is, uh, twisting the arms of the young children, and you do nothing about it. That's not a virtue. That's a cruel indifference. So patience is good, but unlimited patience, nah, that's indifference. There's nothing virtuous about that. And here in Amos chapter 7, we start to see that God's patience has run out with his people. If you are joining us, we've been in this book a few weeks, and uh, Amos is uh, he's a prophet, he's prophesying around about the year 760 BC to Israel, that's the north half, northern half of uh, uh, the, uh, the, the nation, uh, the nation of Israel in the north, the nation of Judah in the south, and uh, Amos is preaching to the, the people of Israel. And he's saying, look, you, you need to change your ways, you're a moral people, you're a corrupt people, and unless you repent, then you will be destroyed. They failed, so 40 years later, the Assyrians came in and destroyed the nation. So it's not the most cheerful of books, because it is indeed a warning. And now we're here, chapter 7 today, we enter the, I guess you'd say the third section of the book, so chapters 1 and 2 announce that God will judge this nation. Chapters 3 to 6 are the bulk of the accusations. Here's what you've done wrong. Essentially it is self-absorbed worship and cruelty to the marginalized and oppressed. So chapters 3 to 6 are the accusation. Then chapters 7 to 9, the last three, essentially they're visions of the future, visions of what will take place coming soon. And we've had four of them, four of the five main ones, uh, read today in uh, chapter 7 and just into chapter 8. The other unusual feature of this little section, in chapter 7 in particular, is Amos is, he's not just announcing... Let me repeat what God has told me. But he's actually an actor in the drama. 
as it were. We see him pleading with God and then debating with Amaziah, the corrupt high priest. So slightly different. Uh, we're going to break it down this way. We're going to look at the pleading of God's man. There's the time for God's justice, the opposition to God's man, and then finally we'll think of the pleading of God's man for us. So first then, in verses 1 to 6, we see there's the pleading of God's man for more patience, I guess. The pleading of God's man in uh, chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. You've got a pair of visions here, the, uh, the locusts and the fire. God shows Amos what's about to happen to encourage him to pray or intercede for the people of Israel. And so chapter 7, verse 1, this is what the Sovereign Lord showed me, he revealed to me. It's a locust plague, devastating. Looks like the king's got his crops in, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. But before the people are able to harvest their crops, devastation comes. Locusts completely wipe out a year's food, and the people will starve. That's the vision of the future. Now Amos sees this and says, uh, verse 2, when they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, oh, sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He's so small. And so if you've been with us here for the whole of Amos, it is just worth noting, Amos is a fairly severe book, you'd have to say. But as he declares, look, the Lord will come and he will judge this world, it is with tears in his eyes. There's no smile on his face, God will judge you, you wicked people. It is with tears, no. No, not that, that is awful, what will come upon these people. The response, well, it's very interesting, chapter 7, verse 3, so the Lord relented, or sometimes translated, equally acceptable, repented, changed his mind. That's interesting. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 6, it's a similar uh, sort of pattern, isn't it? There's an even more dramatic picture of a fire devouring the land. You sometimes see those images on the news, don't you? could just be a village or or a, a street even, and fire has ravaged it, and the people sort of wander around, kicking through what's left of their belongings, all gone, devastated, nothing left. And so verse 5 again, Amos cries out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob or Israel survive this? He's so small. And verse 6, the Lord relented or repented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. The make of this exchange, six chapters the Lord has said that there's going to be a judgment. Chapter 7, he shows Amos, so it's a lot more vivid. Rather than Amos, I'm going to judge these people. Now he gives him these pictures. It's visual. The telly comes on. He says, it's going to look a little bit like this. So it's more vivid to Amos. And he says, no, please no. And the Lord says, oh, okay. And relents, repents, changes his mind. What do we, what do we learn from that? Well, look, what do we learn from Amos's pleading? Let me suggest a few things. Uh, the first, briefly, it, uh, it's prompted by God. You do notice that, don't you? The Lord adopts the politician's tactic. He leaks. He leaks information in order to elicit a response. If I leak this report, 
the media will get in an up in an uproar and then I can sort of manage the response. The Lord leaks what's going to happen. Let me show you, Amos. Let me just draw back the curtain of the future. You see that? What are you going to do? You're going to pray, aren't you? Yeah, like I want you to. So this pleading of Amos is, it is prompted by the Lord. So it's prompted by God. Uh, second little thing here, I, I guess you'd say that the Amos thinks a little bit like God in that he's pleading on the basis that this nation of Israel is so small and feeble and vulnerable. If you've been here for six chapters, this nation of Israel has been saying, we are very impressive. Militarily, we're good. We've just won a war or two. Economically, the, the Sumerian footsie's through the roof. And everyone's doing very well, thank you very much. There's no downturn in Israel. Money, 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 money is all what we've got. They're very pleased with themselves. Amos says, oh, no, 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 they're so small, so vulnerable. And what they need is forgiveness. So this is, I guess you'd say, pleading, prompted by God. It thinks a bit like God. But the most important thing here is it's answered by the personal God. This comment of the Lord, verse, or this comment, verse 3, the Lord relented. Verse 5, so excuse me, verse 6, the Lord relented. Now, it's the same verb used, nicham, for what it's worth. It's a verb in Hebrew which, it has an emotional edge to it. Don't tread carefully here. The Lord reveals himself as personally responsive. Responsive within history to the pleading of Amos. It is not that God is unaware of what will happen. It is not that Amos' praying takes him by surprise. The Lord has prompted him, go on, pray. Pray on these issues but that the Lord's gift of compassion awaits the intercession of Amos that the Lord has prompted. You may have heard this before. Martin Luther's famous advice on praying. He wrote this very long letter to his barber when you pray. pray. This is what you need to take into account. It was about, I don't know, a dozen sides of A4 in, in modern script. And I don't know what you talk to your barber about or indeed your hairdresser. I go to this lovely bloke. He's a middle-aged Kurdish chap. He's obsessed with Kurdish independence and golf. I know nothing about either of those two things. But still, we have quite an enjoyable time. But Martin Luther was a bit more spiritual than me, so he talked to his barber about praying. And uh, the useful sentence, or the famous sentence in the whole this letter that he sent is, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, it is laying hold of his willingness. Now, that is marvelously true. It's not, if I can just persuade God despite his reluctance. No, it's not that. It's just taking hold of his willingness. Here the Lord says, Amos, go on, pray. Pray. And see what happens. Lord, stop. Okay. Oh, yes. That was always my intention. So what we have to do here is hold together both uh, the Lord's utter sovereignty over history that he has every day planned and has done before the beginning of the world. Have to hold together his sovereignty over history and his 
involvement in history, historic intimacy. Both are true. He's both planned it before the creation of the world and is involved minute by minute and relates to us. We just have to hold those two together. Or perhaps more simply to put it, we need to pray like scriptures pray. Pray like the men and women of scriptures pray, trusting that the Lord is sovereign, trusting that he's personally intimate with us. We just need to do both, because that's what the scriptures do. Not just here. But Amos prays very much like Abraham. In Genesis 18, where the Lord says, Abraham, look what I'm going to do. I'll draw back the curtain of history. I'm about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, please, Lord, no, if you find your five, five, 150, ten, few righteous people, will you let Sodom and Gomorrah survive? Okay. Oh, right. Same sort of pattern. The Lord prompts. Abraham prays, much like thinking like God, and the Lord answers, responds. Or Moses in Exodus 32. Moses, let me draw back the curtain of history. I'm about to destroy my people, the Israelites, because of their wicked idolatry with the golden calf. And Moses says, please, Lord, no. And the Lord says, okay. And again, it's the same verb. The Lord relented, changed his mind. It's not literally, that's somewhat unhelpful language. And yet... While he's planned every day before the creation of the world, he acts in response to the pleading of his people. And so you and I must pray that way. The Lord expects his people, you and me, to plead for mercy for those who don't know him, who aren't trusting in him. And so the awkward questions I find myself asking this week are, if I, if I think I've got no time to pray, to intercede, to plead for others who don't know the Lord, does that mean I simply don't care for them? Or if I can't be bothered to get myself up a little bit later, a little bit earlier, no, the year's not right, is it? If I can't be bothered to get myself up a little bit earlier, to carve out time in the day, is that because I think God doesn't care? for these people. But he does. And I find those awkward questions when I read something like this. If we as a church don't plead for those around us, for this city of many people who don't know Jesus Christ, is it no surprise that the Lord therefore would not respond with compassion because he bestows mercy in response to the prayers of his people that he has prompted. That's what we see happening in the scriptures. And so, if we choose to gather or not on a Wednesday, for example, at a week at a prayer meeting here at church, I guess that shows if we understand this, whether we're willing to plead for the sake of those around us. We heard the story of the, uh, uh, the 1857, the autumn of 1857 in New York City banking crisis that rocked the city's financial institutions. In two weeks, 29 banks closed, 40,000 workers in New York lost their jobs as a result of the autumn crash. On September the 23rd, one man, a Christian man, Jeremiah Lamphia, he was a layman, he was a banker himself, he distributed pamphlets just all around everyone he could, the, uh, everyone getting off the transport. It said simply this, a prayer meeting will be held every Wednesday from 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock in the consistory building on Fulton Street. This meeting is intended to give businessmen 
an opportunity to stop and call upon the Lord. It's very formal, isn't it? Hardly the most rousing of messages you'd have received uh, in your little uh, pamphlet as you got off the tube, but there we go. So the first one was on September the 23rd, 1857, and the door was opened, and for 30 minutes, Jeremiah was on his own. Eventually, six people showed that day. He thought, well, we'll have another go next Wednesday. The following Wednesday, 40 people came, and the numbers grew. So at the beginning of October, they decided, well, okay, let's go daily. And all sorts of people started turning up. Within six months, on a daily basis, 10,000 workers gathered to pray each and every day. And they reckon within two years, a million workers within the city of New York were converted. Isn't that extraordinary? Because they pleaded with the Sovereign Lord. No fanaticism. No hysteria, no grand promises, revival is descending. They just got on and prayed. And when you read something like Amos and you hear that story of 150 years ago, you wonder what judgment of the Lord was averted because those thousands gathered to pray that otherwise would have been calamitous upon that city. And then as I start to daydream, you think, I wonder, I just wonder, What judgments of the Lord have been averted because we, in our feeble way, gather to pray? Which person can claim their salvation due to the feeble praying of Christ Church Mayfair, pleading that the Lord would have mercy upon them? I don't know. Who knows? But God responds with mercy to the prayers of his people. And Amos shows us we can have an impact to plead. The pleading of God's man. That's the first, that's the longest, that's about half the sermon. Okay, let's move on. That's the pleading of God's man. Secondly then, let's look at the time for God's justice. So chapters, uh, uh, chapter 7, verse 7. You get another little vision in chapter 7, 7 to 9. It's parallel with chapter 8, 1 to 3. These are different visions. They're united by a more menacing line. I will spare them no longer. Chapter 7, end of uh, verse 8 of chapter 7. I will spare them no longer. Chapter 8, verse 2. I will spare them no longer. So Amos had been pleading for more time. Lord, have mercy. Forgive. Give them more time to turn back to you. And we don't know the time frame. We don't know how long has gone between um, uh, verse 6 and verse 7. Has Amos been pleading for six months while he's been preaching? And then at the end of that, we don't know. We don't know the time scales on this. But the Lord's patience has run out. The vision here then is, verse 7, the Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. The Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I'm setting a plumb line among my people, Israel. I'll spare them no longer. Now, I take it, it's not explicit, I take it probably that the plumb line is meant to be uh, the word of God. Here is a wall representing Israel that was originally built true, and has now become wonky and distorted. And so I think it's fair to say in Exodus 1920 at Mount Sinai, Israel is formed as a nation. God declares them a nation at that point. And they're formed by 
his words of grace. I have rescued you, and now you must keep my law. So there's a nation formed truly by God's salvation and God's words of law. So words of grace and words of law. I take it that's the plumb line that formed them true, but they're now distorted. Now God holds up his words next to these people and says, well, they're a mess. It's quite a helpful picture, isn't it? Or a helpful image of a wall and a plumb line. Because when you look at a wall, they normally look straight. I remember the traumatic, no, they're too strong, depressing realization. I remember as a teenager, I wonderfully, nobly, heroically, manfully built a garden wall uh, in our garden for my father. You can't build it straight. Oh, yes, I can. And so I built this wall, and it was magnificent. Apart from, of course, when Dad comes out and says, oh, you know, it looks all right, and puts up the plumb line, and, you know, there's the line, and there's the wall, and, you know, the two are not, you know, not as straight as you'd think. When you look at a wall with the human eye, you think, oh, that's okay, that's straight. When you measure it with a perfect plumb line, oops. And that's the picture here. You and I can look at our own lives and say, well, pretty good, as far as I can tell, straight, moral. Good. And you hold up the plumb line of God's word. Wonky. Teetering. About to collapse. As soon as any bird lands. You know, there's a difference, isn't there? It's a very helpful picture of the plumb line. That's a biblical truth. You and I think we're moral people, impressive people. The sort of people that God would look and judge and say, yeah, good. Upstanding. But measured against the truth is of his word, how he'd like us to live. Morally corrupt, wonky, vulnerable. And that's the picture here. Back then, verse 9, in particular, it's going to be the religious sanctuaries and the monarchy that will be destroyed. Their self-absorbed worship and the pride in their military king. Now again, if you've been here every week in the book of Amos, you have to face up. It throws the issue up in the air that God will judge. And the modern world dislikes that. We don't tend to desire a God who judges. If you're going to have a God, surely it's nicer to have a kind God who forgives. And of course, that is true in part. You just need to be a bit more sophisticated and realize what's at stake. And you just any you can take any week of newspapers, can't you? You can take the past week and say, if you're the family of April Jones, you don't simply want kindness shown to Mark Bridger. You do want justice. Because unlimited kindness shown to him is cruel indifference to the sexual attack upon your young girl. You want justice, not simply kindness. And kindness for him is injustice for her. You can't, come on, let's just be realistic and sophisticated about this. It's naive to say just kindness. Or again in Syria, if you're a citizen of Syria and you've seen your parents or your siblings slaughtered, you don't just want unlimited kindness. Just walk away, Bashar al-Assad. Walk off into exile with millions and live the life of Riley. That's fine. You don't want that. That unlimited kindness with him is cruelty to you, your family, the victims. So we just need to be realistic about what we're asking here. Don't pit judgment against kindness. Often the two 
go hand in hand. Judgment upon Mark Bridger is kindness for the family of April Jones. And so here in Amos, if you've been here, you'll know that God is saying, I'll judge a wicked people. Oppressive, unjust, exploitative of the poor, corrupt in their courts. It's those people that will be judged. So there is a time for God's justice. And we do want his patience to run out. So there's the pleading of God's man, the time for God's justice. Uh, briefly then, verses 10 to 17, you then get the opposition to God's man. In verses 10 to 17. And there's no great surprise, because a message that God is coming to judge will always bring opposition. And so we meet Amaziah, the, the priest of Bethel, and he's not happy with Amos. That's obvious, isn't it? It comes out. And so he... Um, I guess you'd say he sort of offers some little tests to Amos in different ways. Uh, firstly, he misrepresents him in verses 10 and 11. So he says to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. No, he's not. He's saying that God is going to judge all of Israel. It's not against the king in particular. That's a complete mis- misrepresentation. So he misrepresents him. I guess you could say verse 12, he tempts him. Amaziah says to Amos, Oh, get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. You'll be popular down there. You go to France and tell them that England's about to collapse financially. There'll be lots of people going, Oh, that's quite, <laughs> you know, we don't, you know, their silly, silly Anglo Saxon economic model. There'll be some people who are cheerful. Go to Judah and say Israel's about to be judged. All people will be happy. Go there. It'll be much easier for you. Just go away. There's a little temptation for him, for Amos. He misrepresents him, he tempts him, and then blatantly, I think, he tries to intimidate him. Verse 13, don't prophesy at Bethel. This is the king's sanctuary, the temple of the kingdom. I am the priest. I am impressive. You are not. Go away. Now, for, for, for us here today, just being honest about it, it's an honest little section, isn't it? You tell people that the Lord will judge. He's perfect. He'll come with justice. It'll be a wonderful day where wrongs are righted. But if you stand on the wrong side, it'll be horrible. Now, a message of God's judgment will always be unpopular with some, particularly those with a sort of religious veneer like Amaziah has got. They won't like it. I take it Amaziah would not be willing to say, along with Jeremy, just reading from his little uh, um, statement, Jesus' death on the cross is crucial. Jesus has borne God's judgment for me so I can enjoy eternal life. Amaziah would hate that. I don't want anyone. I don't need anyone to die a death for me. I'm not facing God's judgment. I'm a religious man. So a message that God will judge and that all of us naturally are not plumb but askew and in need of judgment upon us. That'll never go down particularly well with some people. Just got to be aware of that, says Amos. But he's a terrific little model. So uh, Amaziah has a go at him and Amos comes back, verse 14, I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a shepherd. I also took care of the sycamore figs. Look, I'm not doing this for the money, you know. I'm doing this on my annual leave. Do you think I'm loving this? I am not. 
But God, verse 15, the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go and prophesy. Now, Amaziah, verse 16, you've had your go. Can I say to you once again, hear the word of the Lord, because I'm coming back at you. And verse 17 is miserable. But just a reminder that those who set themselves up as teachers are assessed or judged more stringently by the Lord. That's true throughout the scriptures. So Amos is a happy model for us there. He'll face opposition. He faces opposition. But he just keeps on plugging away. And what is Amos? What is he? He's a, well, he's got two jobs. I don't know if that means he's very wealthy or he's just struggling to make ends meet. But he's a shepherd and he looks after trees. He makes, fi- or he curates figs. He's saying, look, I'm not a professional Amaziah. I'm doing this in my leave. I'm not doing it for the money. I'm doing it because God wants me to. It's encouraging, I think. God doesn't always call people from their present line of work in order to proclaim his message. The Lord uses shepherds and fig cultivators to share his word with people and musicians and lawyers and teachers and bankers and accountants and whatever we are. This is all sorts of people. But be aware, there'll be opposition. There's the opposition to God's man. Last thing, and then last thing before we wrap up. Finally then, let's just consider that what we need is we need the pleading of God's man for us. We need the pleading of God's man for us. Amos chapter 7, the Lord is, what is he doing? Well, he's calling you and I, he's calling believers to pray. He tells us, if we're believers, to expect religious opposition. But in this, there's also a reminder that we need a man like Amos. We need one to plead for us, like Amos does. And you can't really read this, I don't think, without thinking, huh, well, Jesus Christ, he was God's man who knew opposition more than anyone did. Oh, the religious establishment, did they love him? They did not. They hated him when he said, you are not true, you are not plumb, the Lord will judge you, you need to repent. And they hated it. But he kept on. Kept on. Just warning and warning. You and I don't. We fail. We cave under intimidation, temptation. But Jesus never did. And Jesus Christ is God's man who pleads for us. Of course, I take it you and I, I hope, are not as bad as a Mark Bridger or a Bashar al-Assad, of course, or whoever you've read about in the news this week. I hope not. But the Lord says, but you're not perfect, are you? Measured against the standard of my word, you fall short. And there will be a judgment upon your life. Unless Jesus Christ has died for you and is sat at God's right hand interceding for you, pleading for you. And in the New Testament, Romans chapter 8, verse 34, the Apostle Paul is clear that that is precisely what the risen Jesus Christ is doing. He sat at God's right hand pleading for us. He pleads, my people are so small. He pleads, Father, forgive them, but not just hopefully, His pleading is on the basis of his death. Lord, my Father, I plead for them, for I have died for them and taken judgment upon them. 
And so now I ask for justice, that you forgive them. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you just be reminded that Jesus Christ speaks your name to the Father. Even today, Father, forgive Jeremy, for I have paid for his sins. And whatever your name is, if you're a Christian, forgive Sally. I have paid for her sins. But if you've never trusted in him, trust in the man who pleads for you. And then get on with pleading for others, expecting the opposition. But give thanks that we have one better than Amos, who pleads for you and for me. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, this is an unsettling chapter in many ways. For those of us who know you, uh, we confess we are perhaps half-hearted, weak at pleading for the sake of others. We are too self-absorbed, too self-concerned to worry about the needs, and in particular the need of salvation for many around us. Would we plead for those who don't know you? Would we expect fully opposition when we seek to tell others? And Father, we thank you that when we fail, there is one who did not. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who faced down opposition, who wonderfully, lovingly warned of the justice that would come. And so we thank you that we stand righteous in him, if we've trusted in his death for us. And we plead that many more would. And so be with us, with him, on that day in glory. I ask in Jesus' name.